tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you going? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? What do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Cultworthy Classic Cinema Podcast, the podcast dedicated to cultworthy films made before 1970. We are back after a long break. We had a great show last month, and we are back again with one of my favorite guests. And you made your appearance for the first time on the Cultworthy Classic, didn't you? I did. Producers, great episode, great movie. If you don't recognize that voice, you should. If you're a listener of my show, I've got the amazing Justin Henson of the Movie Wire podcast on the show to talk about a very special, let's say, Father's Day themed film. Justin, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad the classic's back. So just made my year that the classic's back. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I had to put something aside for a little bit, you know, and I'm not back to weeklies. I'll probably do like bi-weeklies and monthlies for a little bit until I can get the swing of running three podcasts, maybe four in the future. I don't know. But yeah, I keep watching so many great classic films and just really it frustrates me that I have a podcast where I can talk about them. But, you know, getting that time coordinated and getting all these things put together it can get frustrating sometimes, especially with someone who is as busy as you are watching films and podcasting weekly, getting guest schedules to line up. But I'm just happy we were able to make this one work. And I'm really excited to have you on in future episodes for sure, because I got a lot of great films lined up over the next year. I can't wait because you always bring something good to the table. So, well, most of the time. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be fun if it was just all sunshine and roses, right? Like that's true. A little debate is what makes things exciting. And again, film appreciators, you and I are both in this uh, idea of that art is completely objective and subjective. Like one man's trash is another man's treasure. And you don't always have to agree with someone on something, but when you do, especially when it's someone whose opinion you respect it just makes that film just so much more special, you know? Oh, like we've said numerous times, I, th I think film is like the last great debate where we can have an actual conversation. So you're 100% right. You know, I used to say it was music and film, but music, especially modern music these days, if people think that there's no originality left in Hollywood and that films are just rehashes of previous films and previous stories... Man, music has just kicked that horse to death. You can't have a song now without sampling something else. And even if you have an original song, someone is going to sue you because they say you use their chord progression or that you used, let's say, three little notes of a chorus that they lined up together. It's just, I feel that the music industry is no longer as prestigious as it once was. But the thing about film is we can always create something new we can always create something visually and not just audibly to entice your senses and to entice your emotions and especially with what you've been doing this last year on the movie wire you are not just watching the cinema that the studios want you to see you're watching experimental films you're watching uh, these a24 films revisionist pictures art house pictures and when you're doing like these three or four reviews per episode, it's like the perfect blend of 
letting people know what options are actually out there. They don't have to go see an MCU. They don't have to go see whatever the hell Fast and Furious movies out in the theater this week. You're giving them the options and your honest opinion of whether or not they're worth their time and money. Because here, time and money means so much more now than it did when we were kids. Oh, 100%. And there are so many good stories um, out there that's not Hollywood blockbusters that just go really under the radar. And you talk about these films all the time where they gain popularity, they gain a following. And a lot of the films we see, whether they, they come to streaming or your local theater, um, they should be known. They should at least have a chance to actually be viewed before they actually receive that cult following. Um, so there's a lot of great stories out there that people deserve to uh, not see the normal blockbusters that come out. So um, I encourage everybody to just I, I like to challenge a lot of my friends to just go to the theater, pick something you haven't seen a preview for and just go and you'd be pleasantly surprised on what you see. I'm also, you know, we had this conversation before. It's kind of an uncomfortable topic and opinion, but there were a lot of benefits that came out of the pandemic and out of lockdown. And I think one of those benefits was people didn't have the options that they used to have when it came to their entertainment. They weren't going to concerts. They weren't going to the cinema. So you started seeing these streaming sites like HBO Max, now just Max, Tubi, Shudder, Prime, all these different streaming platforms expanding their catalogs and releasing films that were so hard to find for the longest time or just unheard of. And people started, just like a Spotify playlist, watching films. It would suggest another title, suggest another genre, and they'd find themselves going down these rabbit holes. And before they knew it, they unintentionally became cinema appreciators. And then when the world opened back up and they could go back to the theater or they could go, let's see, a play or maybe a repertory cinema experience they now had like some kind of groundwork and blueprint to appreciate cinema much more because they've seen things that they never would have watched on their own had they not been in that situation where they were locked in a room and just dying for content, dying for something to watch. And I think, like I said, it's one of the hidden benefits of having that lockdown happen. 100% agree. And I give a lot of credit. It's one of my favorite streaming platforms. I'm not going to plug it. Um, but Tubi, I'm a huge fan of Tubi. Um, you see a lot of gems on there that really have, and I've gone down the Tubi rabbit hole where even with the film we're going to talk about today, it recommended a lot of other great films that I went and watched that I would have never seen before. So, um, streaming, it has its pluses, it has its minuses. Um, but what I should be grateful for is exactly what you spoke to, which is introducing and that's the most important thing right in introducing a lot of those unheard films or films that you may not have watched before prior pandemic um so there are some benefits to it and i'm grateful for that aspect of it absolutely right you know when when we were in our youth you had the guy at the counter in the video store he would be the one that would tell you you got to watch this film unless you had like a cinema nerd friend or someone in the family with a massive physical media collection, oftentimes you did not know these films existed. If you were just someone looking for something to watch, you'd ask the guy at the counter. That guy's not there anymore. So now I think it's up to us, like podcasters. We're the guy at the counter now. But in a sense, 
things like Tubi and Prime and HBO that give you those suggestions if you watch something and you liked it, that's essentially your virtual guy at the counter. And it's really cool seeing people go down these rabbit holes. It's really cool to get on Letterboxd and see just, you know, a year ago, someone who maybe only had like 200 films in their queue and then their ratings now have 2,000 because they just keep going down the rabbit hole and getting really excited about it. It's a big thing, and I don't think the the regular public know how much it's grown in the last two years. Yeah, and I think we've had this discussion before where there is a lot of movies out there that don't get the opportunity, the funding, they don't get the studio mm-hmm. funding to actually be released in a theater. Um, like I, I think I told you the other day is two of my favorite movies this year are on streaming. Right. Um, and these are the films that actually get that opportunity to have that funding to be available to watch. So there are a lot of benefits to it. And I'm especially grateful this, this year because there's been a lot of trash coming out this year. Yeah. So I am grateful for a lot of the cool stuff coming on streaming. So now that we've talked about that, let's get to the nitty gritty. We are doing a film that is just perfect for this time of year. This is like the Father's Day episode. And, you know, I'm an only child. I was always much closer to my father than I was to my mom. And I don't really get too emotional in movies. I mean, I don't cry when Bambi's mother dies. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Or Old Yeller or any of those things like that. But I get so teary-eyed when there is like a very strong father and son connection. And that really is kind of like my kryptonite. Those are my, that's my weakness when it comes to being emotionally vulnerable in a movie. So when I see a film about a very strong relationship between a father and a son, or even a father and a daughter, To Killing Mockingbird is a perfect example. Like, the relationship between Atticus and Scout is just this relationship, I think, that at some point everyone, whether they had a happy childhood or a terrible childhood, it's the thing that they want. It's the thing that they wished for. It's the thing that they would, like, hold themselves to if they were ever going to be a parent is like, I want that dynamic because it just brings all the feels. So when I start experiencing cinema that has a story like that, it's something that I desperately want to share with other people, especially people who I feel have a similar story or personality as me. Uh, what, What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of almost the opposite. With movies, we have a lot of, and I categorize these into two different types. So you have the ones that kind of crescendo, build upon the emotion that actually tries to connect with your emotions. And then you have the other generics that just act like a boxing match that just gets you right at the climax for that one last attempt at an emotional impact. Yeah. Um, There's a difference between a boxing match and a journey. The ones that I really connect with is exactly kind of what you spoke to, but I'm also a big sucker for that final boxing match at the end. <laughs> right, if you do right. it correctly, <laughs> but the journey of building upon these relationships, it, if you build a relationship with your characters, an audience member can connect to something. There is something in growth from youth to adult, from your parents to even the friends you interact with that you can actually interact with and relate to on screen if the filmmakers do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And I think with me, the, the movie we're going to be talking about is absolutely one of those that hits hard and it hits really good. And it's that earned journey that I just spoke about. Ooh, I like that earned journey. And this film definitely earns it. We are talking about 1969's Poppy. 
Good boys. Good kids. Junior's 11. What the hell are you hitting me for? Who brought the mailbox? I told you I don't know. I ain't no fortune teller. Luis is 9. Yeah, but these guys in school, if you don't give them your lunch money, they'll beat you up. Who does this to you? <laughs> nice kids. Don't give you no trouble. What happened in the bedroom? You just wanted to try it? You want these boys? I'll give them to you. Sign the papers, everything. You think I'm joking? I'm not joking. What kind of man is it that gives away his children? Let them grow up to be elevator operators and bus boys. And then when they're 35 years old, they get the same crap from their kids. They say, ah, but Bobby was a good man who kept the family together. Directed by Arthur Hiller, one of my favorite journeyman directors of all time, and starring one of my just favorite performers of all time, a man who, even in a terrible movie, is gold and, and brings credibility to any project that he's in, and that's Alan Arkin. You an Alan Arkin fan? Huh, yeah, I love Alan Arkin. He is an amazing actor. It, just not even an actor, just a performer. You know, he was a folk that singer. Too. He was an improv uh, guy. He, he really kind of covered all the bases of entertainment. And talk about just a relevance in entertainment for a decade upon decade, you know, starting in the 60s with films like this, into the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. I mean, even up until the 2000s and the 2010s, we're still seeing him. He's still just winning hearts and putting smiles on faces and really just bringing so much warmth to his projects. Uh, I think most modern audiences would know him as the grandfather from Little Miss Sunshine. I think that was a film that really kind of introduced him to, let's say, millennials and and early Gen Zers, you know? Just a small little film with an amazing cast. It did wonders at the Academy. It did wonders for such a small independent film. And one of the things that people talked about the most was Alan Arkin's performance. Won an Oscar for it, you know? So he's not just, you know, someone who is, let's say, established to be established like a Nicholson or a Pacino who kind of earned their stripes early on and have ridden that wave all the way into the 2020s. This guy has made impactful films decade after decade after decade across all the different genres. Yeah, and if you look at his growth, I mean, he is very strategic to a point of what roles he picks because any role he's in, he just fits perfectly into that role and that's also due to his performance as well but it just feels like anything he does just is made for him and you see that uh, my first uh, interaction with viewing an uh, arkin film is a rocketeer personally oh yeah um <laughs> and that one he was one of those growing up that i didn't know the name when at that age but you always recognized him to me as the rocketeer guy and anytime he would show up in a movie Thus, after that, it was just a joy to see him on screen. He, his on-screen presence is just there, and it's really nostalgic for me to actually go back and watch, especially this film. You see, and I kind of grew up with this movie. My dad loved it. You know, my dad was an immigrant. You know, my dad uh, was half Spanish, half Mexican, and was passed off from family to family all over the world, really. Uh, he was raised in the circus. He spent time in Europe, he spent time in Mexico, spent time in America with different family members, and grew up in a very, let's say, hooligan-styled childhood, much like the childhood that we see these kids live in. 
And this is a movie that he saw when he was like still learning how to speak English in America. And he just loved this movie. And he showed it to me the first time uh, he found it on TV. He's like, oh, it's Poppy. We have to watch Poppy. And even as a kid, probably like eight or nine, oh my God, it, it just touches you because it really is about a father's love. And I think if you don't understand that father and son relationship, how it can be hot and cold, how it can be spicy and sweet, and how it can be joyful one second and then absolutely devastating the next, this film covers all of those emotions throughout. And it's funny, when you watch this film with a female audience, I have people that I've watched this with, some women who are just like, I would never do that. It's like, Mm. because you're a nurturer, you know? And this this is a film about a single father who nurturing isn't really an option for him. He lives in Spanish Harlem, New York in the 60s. He works three, four jobs, is never at home, and he really is just kind of relying on the neighbors, the streets, and his somewhat girlfriend to make sure that his sons don't fall into this pit of despair and depravity that a lot of these wilding kids of New York City fall into. And it makes him really have to think about some serious choices, which is kind of like the development of the plot. And let's just say, for first and foremost, he's a widower. It's not that his wife left mm-hmm. or anything. So that yeah. makes it even more devastating. Yeah. And here's what I really appreciate about this. And this is a story that really holds true. I, I can appreciate the simplicity of the story, but with high stakes conflict that really attacks the heart. Um mm-hmm. But you're right. He works three jobs. He's doing the best he can. And even when he comes off of the jobs, it's like he has to play the cleanup crew. He has to parent based on the result of the actions of the day. And this is where I think us as parents really can relate to it is to the point where we try and do everything that we can with everything that we have on hand. And sometimes we have that just weight on our shoulders that with uh, Alan Arkin, you can feel in his tough exterior that there's some hopelessness to it. But at the same time, he has that rough exterior and the best starting uh, see the best starting scene we have is that argument right in the beginning where you can see that argument where this scene is great because it's like Alan Arkins talking to a younger version of himself. Agreed. It, it's, it's like a mirror between the two that shows that father son dynamic. And that's what really kicks us off to that relationship of the family. Who broke the mailbox? How do I know? The junkies, they steal everything. What the hell are you hitting me for? Who broke the mailbox? I told you I don't know. I ain't no fortune teller. Who broke the mailbox? I did. What was in the mailbox? I don't know. You know what was in the mailbox? You tell me. A letter from the teacher. What it says? That I was in the school Thursday or Friday. Where'd you go yesterday? 42nd Street. Where'd you go with? Sylvia. Where'd you get the money to go to 42nd Street? Didn't have any money. We jumped the subway under the turnstile. What'd you do on 42nd Street? Went to a show. Where'd you get the money for the show? I saw the church of the two times. Where'd you get the transistor? Found it. You, you stole it. All right, I stole it from the drugstore. Call the cops. I don't need... Well, and also it really does speak to the time of when this movie takes place. And let's just say the immigrant experience, the foreigner experience, especially in a time where 
racial tensions were high and this is a you know this is just a few years removed from West Side Story. Uh, his family's Puerto Rican. He plays a guy named Abraham Rodriguez, and he lives in Spanish Harlem. And this is a time where people who are immigrants, or let's say people of certain ethnicities and cultures, even as hardworking or as educated as they were, had zero opportunity in America. You know, it's kind of like the whole American Tale thing. You think you're going to a world where the streets are paved with cheese and you get there and you're living three people in a studio apartment and the toilets in the kitchen. Like this is the reality for people of that day and age. And I don't think there's a father out there who doesn't want their child to have the best. And it's funny because when you think about it, the best doesn't even have to be a mansion. The best doesn't even have to be a, a private school. The best could actually just be an apartment that doesn't have a toilet in the kitchen. It's just like the next step up. That is pretty much everything that he is working for. And so there's a really interesting part at the very beginning. It's essentially what opens the movie as they are trying to do this little con to get themselves into a funeral for another family just so they can get a ride to the cemetery where the mother's buried so they can pay their respects to her grave. Apparently, this is like a weekly thing that they do. Is they <laughs> crash a funeral so they can get a ride to the cemetery. And he looks right to the camera. And that's an interesting choice uh, from the director to have these moments where they break the fourth wall. He speaks directly to you, a la Ferris Bueller, saying, these are good kids. You know, they, they're smart, uh, trying to raise them right. Do you want them? And at first, it's like, what? Are you just trying to pawn your kids off? But then you understand why he is making this pitch to you. It prepares you for the journey that he's about to take to give his kids a better life. Yeah, it also sets up his character, too. Because at, in the beginning, we think he's telling 100% of the truth, right? Mm -hmm. And it almost is like he's conning the audience right. to an extent, <laughs> So we're kind of getting that character definition um, right in the beginning, and it's almost an additional step going through for us to discover who this man is and what his true intent is. And as we crescendo just ba barely past the first act, we kind of really get a take of what this father's intent is, and we put that to bed, and we kind of realize what his intent with the kids are next. So I think it's a brilliant setup, and I love the fact that he faced the camera to give that definition of what he's trying to do. Um, it leaves a lot for the audience to kind of tear apart and give a, a little appetizer to what we're about to receive. And, you know, one of the big criticisms I have read from certain critics, Roger Ebert especially, who he was favorable of this film, but just like any Roger Ebert review, he does have like some biting quips about, let's say, story structure or how he feels that this feels like two different movies. And, Maybe to the common film viewer, it does feel like two different movies. There is a lot of comedy and slapstick in this film, and there's also just tremendous amounts of gut-wrenching drama in this film. But to me, you have to be an appreciator of the director, Arthur Hiller, to understand that that's what Arthur Hiller does. That is his modus operandi in pretty much all of his films. So I get it. If you are tearing apart the film in that aspect and not really understanding how the filmmaker makes his movies, then yeah, you can definitely give it that kind of critique. But that is what makes 
Arthur Hiller's films to me so engrossing is that you can have slapstick routines in a film like this. I mean, there are moments where Abraham may as well be Inspector Clouseau. You know, he's a handyman. He goes down to fix a, a, a leaky basement that's flooded and he's wearing his best shoes. And so he puts buckets on his feet to try and walk through the water. <laughs> and of course, it doesn't work. And it's just like one mishap after another after another. It's very Blake Edwardsly. And it, yeah, it doesn't feel like it belongs in that movie at first. But what it's really doing is it's softening up your opinion of this so called hard man who puts on a very hard uh, surface on his face and on his lifestyle to make people think that he can't be broken. It, what it really does is show you how vulnerable he is. And by using humor and slapstick to get you there, I think that's brilliant filmmaking, although I do understand where people would have that critique. Yeah, and I... I think I went through that review as well, and I wouldn't say I necessarily agree that it's a balancing issue or two different movies in the last half hour. I can see a little bit of balancing issues of compared to the rest of the movie. I think it went into a little more chaotic um, tone than what the first half got. But what I really liked about what they put uh, uh, Poppy's character in, it's situational. It's like dirty jobs. It's where you take all these jobs and what happens like the scene at the morgue where he's holding the body, has to answer the phone, mm -hmm. the buckets you referred to. I mean, this is a man that works multiple jobs. I don't think it went over the top when it comes to the comedy. I think it was an actual perfect balance between the emotional buildup and the comedy. There was it, it's not even more slapstick. It's it's realistic comedy given the situation, I think. So I don't know if I necessarily agree it feels like two separate movies. I think it was, to me, a perfect balance of what it needed to move the movie forward. And also it really kind of speaks to filmmaking in the 60s. You know, I think uh, Arthur Penn's style is very similar. George Roy Hill's style is very similar where you can have these like really lighthearted moments that are almost whimsical and then just bring you down with a huge dose of reality. I mean, for example, these kids are pretty much being raised by the streets and mm -hmm. Abraham, Poppy, has a very, very interesting way of handling that life. You know, he is not above pulling a fast con or a long con to get them to the cemetery or to get them into a nicer place. But he is absolutely against them stealing or peddling drugs or doing any of the things or vices that the neighborhoods have already fallen to. He does have like that sense of pride and that sense of, let's just say, operating in a world where morality has a, a flexible governor. You know, like kids, do not steal, do not peddle drugs, do not become like these junkies, do not break into the mailbox, but we don't have a car, so we're gonna do this little ruse to get to the cemetery. That moral flexibility is a perfect definition of what he has to do to raise these kids. So when it turns out that these kids have started kind of doing their own little cons of their own to have a better life, for example, they tell all the neighborhood kids that he is the brother of a drug pusher in the neighborhood, so they are respected, so these kids don't mess with them. And just because he kind of gets involved in this and tries to put them on the straight and narrow, it actually makes things worse for them because these kids are now busted in a lie 
and the neighborhood wilding kids beat the shit out of them and they take their clothes and they humiliate them. And what starts off as like a cute little tender moment turns into a very dark and disturbing moment of, oh, this is reality. This is what these neighborhoods are like. And it, no wonder these kids are lying so they can avoid stuff like this. And it just makes the stakes higher for the decisions that Abraham eventually makes. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because especially the clothes burn, burning, I thought that was an amazing scene when it when you look at the symbolism of that. Um, what I took away from that is you have this family with a very tough exterior and it the examples are just shown. That scene when the clothes are burned and you see the kids just in hiding, just seeing them emotionally wrecked, it's a great piece of symbolism that their exterior has been exposed. It's been broken through to show that actual uh, emotion coming from the kids. And when it comes to the morality piece of it, I mean, this is a movie that is packed full of themes from laws to death to rebirth at one point. Um, it goes into that saying, would you steal a loaf of bread to feed your family? Would that be morally wrong? And you're absolutely right. You take, they're not stealing. They're not uh, committing a lot of crimes. They're actually trying to survive. This in a way is an example of Arkin trying to do the best that he can managing these kids without going to the full extent of losing their moral compass. And I think they do a fantastic job in making examples of that. Um, Especially um, when we get to the climax where you see um, Poppy in the ocean. Where, yes. again, open for interpretation, but what I took away from that is him baptizing himself to clean away the morals to have his kids safe. And if he's recognizing what he did and the things he's done in the past to and ask for forgiveness. So, and I think the summary and the buildup to that was very spot on. I think it was brilliant. Absolutely. And let's talk about performances for a second before we like jump into the second act of like what he is actually going to do to try and save these kids' lives. The two kids, played by Ruben Figuera and Miguel Alejandro, they were not actors. They were street kids that they brought into this film. And it shows, and it's perfect. Because you look at both of these kids, and they're like, what, eight and 10 years old? But you can see years of struggle, and years of, let's say, abuse, or just maybe even malnutrition. These are kids that look like they've had rough lives, and they bring that into their performance, the inflection of their voices. They're not really whiny as much as they are aggressively emotional because they know that they need to be heard, and Alan Arkin's character doesn't really have that in them to listen. It's more of like, no, you listen to me. But Poppy, but Poppy, no, 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 no. Listen to me because I'm going to guide you in the straight and narrow. And he learns that, hey, if he would have listened, if he would have just let them speak, if he would have understood their words and took some time to, let's say, comprehend the stakes that they put themselves into, then things might have not ended up as bad for them. And the way they bring that with that rawness it just really makes this movie work even better. It kind of reminds me of like Cassavetti's movies when he made these movies in New York and he brings a lot of rawness and realness. Like in the movie Gloria, the little kid in Gloria, just very raw and very emotional, not trained, not skilled, not polished. 
that kind of performance from a child actor in this film would ruin all the credibility that it's already brought to the table. Yeah, and I think it was the decision to bring in just normal kids. And here's what the brilliant thing is about that is they take this raw behavior that you already spoke to, which is step one, awesome. And then the only thing they have to mimic is Poppy. They have Alan Arkin. So they're watching this man act. And that's where we get a lot of the rawness and a lot of that mimic come from uh, that dynamic. And I think whether that was planned or not, what the ending result's going to be was amazing. It, it Without those two kids and that smart decision of the casting director, I think this would have been a flop when it comes to dynamic. The yeah. script is fantastic, but the execution of the performances is what really pushed it over the edge between these two kids and Alan Arkin. It's no secret. Alan Arkin is a very Jewish man. And I remember hearing him talk about this on uh, Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. You know, he did uh, Puerto Rican and Cuban accents and performances a lot. He's done Russian. He's done German. He's done so many ethnicities. And when they asked him, like, how do you do it so easily? He's like, well, these are the neighborhoods that I grew up in. You know, he's like, I was just naturally inclined to mimic and mime the people around me. And so, you know, you're two blocks away from Spanish Harlem. If you go to the bodega, that's the guy working the counter or that's the guy sweeping the floor. And he would just mimic these people's accents. I find it really interesting because I have read some, let's say, modern day, slightly contemporary critiques of this where, you know, people really want to attack the representation part of it. Well, you know, there weren't a whole lot of Puerto Rican or Cuban actors that were available or trained or even accepted when this movie was made. So the one thing I can say to them, which uh, I understand you can use Pacino's performance in Scarface as, let's say, the, the mirror to this. The difference is, is I always find Pacino's performance in Scarface to be very exaggerated, almost uh, bombastic for a reason. He did that on purpose, you know. It, it's a bombastic movie where Arkin's performance in this is so genuine that even if he might, let's say, lose his accent for a second and maybe come off with a little bit of his New York Jewish accent. That does happen in a few parts. It does. Guess what? It's New York. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the melting pot. It's the blended ethnicity of all these neighborhoods together. And if he, as a Jewish man growing up, could pick up these accents, what's not to say that a Puerto Rican man who spends all of his days working all these different jobs in different native neighborhoods of New York couldn't have the same thing happen to him. It's just, that's New York, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And again, New York, you have a lot of different cultures in there to pick it up, but what really works with the accent is what I've always appreciated about the delivery of Alan Arkin is his crescendo decrescendo of lines. When he's uh, making a point, it's always a crescendo to decrescendo Mm -hmm. during an argument. And the mix of that with the accent works it it doesn't feel forced it comes across natural along with his body language um this is a role that i don't i can't picture off the top of my head that many would be able to execute as well as alan arkin just because of his style when he's arguing or if he he's uh, spouting spouting a line of importance he makes it known this is an important line by the way he actually delivers and it is almost energetic 
it's entertaining by itself to just watch him go. It's like watching a live show. I can just watch him deliver those words of dialogue for two hours. And I think, you know, just with his improv background as well, it's very easy for him to trans, let's say, transpose his thoughts and let's say some improvisation into the script and come off completely genuine. You know, let's say the line, maybe there was like, what, 12 sentences in one portion of dialogue. He might be throwing in, you know, a bunch of exposition that was like, in his mind, explaining his background like improv actors do. You know, like there is the written word and then there is the character. There is the the things between the written words. And that's where I always feel like he fills in because if there's one thing like you said with the crescendo and decrescendo there's never a wasted moment of space between his line delivery you know there are actors who like to stylistically syncopate their dialogue because it makes them unique it makes them uh, watchable but it also makes them distinguishable from other people and with him he's not going to waste any time or any space or any breath in in syncopating dialogue. He is going to put all of his thoughts and emotions, and even if that means adding little lines and little quips, he's going to do it. One of the scenes especially with that is, there's a scene later on, I know we're kind of skipping ahead a little bit, where he is having a debate with the translator of Spanish because he's told these kids they can only speak Spanish. And it's a fun little kind of back and forth, but you can tell one actor is delivering dialogue. Alan Arkin is delivering emotion and thought, and he is provoking the other actor. And it's a great performance for Arkin. It really kind of steals a show for him. It also kind of sucks the energy out of the other guy. There are moments like that where if you just let him loose, he's going to go. And if you are not a performer that can keep up with a, a, a guy like that, you're going to get lost. You're going to get washed out. There could have been 20 things in Spanish. For example, for example, you know those toys that got a cup and a ball? They call those toys beliches, right? Now, semana means week, right, Mr. Diaz? Yes. That's what he says, semana beliches. The week of toys? That doesn't make any sense. Then he could have said, somos lapises. We are pencils? Somos chinches. We are bad bugs. All right, all right. Sueño, I dream. Babuches. Slippers. Sueño babuches. I dream of slippers. Oh, no, senor, no. Listen, Mr. Diaz, how do you say beans? Habichuelas. How do you say they eat beans? Ellos comen habichuelas, but he didn't say ellos. How do you say a mouthful of water? Son in his breach. How do you say it is bad gossip? Son bochinches. Saturday. Sabado. How do you say bobby pins? Pinches. Saturday, bobby pins? Sabado pinches. Yeah, and this is one of those movies that you can really tell there was there had to be some improvision in this. I mean, the the script had a good guideline by uh, Tina and Lester Pine, and they had some realistic words on the page. You can tell, but there is a lot to this uh, story and performances that you can't really put on a script until you really dive in and see who's going to be delivering the lines. Mm-hmm. When you get into an argument especially with the kids or uh, you're trying to sell a concept or a con uh, you got to put your own spin on it or else it will not be delivered to the audience. And when you're sitting at a typewriter back then or a computer now, that's something that even the most talented screenwriter can't envision. They can have the concept, 
but it's up to the actor to really, truly, truly make that a believable performance. Especially when you're dealing with children, you know, children yeah. that might have, let's say, a hard time memorizing dialogue or, or even reciting dialogue. If you can make them feel comfortable by just speaking to them like they are real people and that they are your kids, there are a lot of actors that have been great with that. Alan Garfield in particular, he just has a way of just speaking to people, especially children in movies, that it seems so realistic because he can get into their mind of like, this is how a child speaks. A child doesn't talk like this line is. Uh, you know, as long as we're pushing the story along, I'm going to ask this kid what he ate for lunch at school today. I'm going to ask this kid who his girlfriend is. I'm going to ask this kid, you know, what he likes to do after school, and then we'll get to the line. Let the editor figure it out, because what yep. you're going to do is you're going to get genuine performances, and that is really what this movie is about. It's not about the story. It's about the performances. So moving on to the next part of the story, man, Abraham has to make a very difficult decision, and it's been one that he's been brewing for a long time. And after the incident of the clothes burning of the kids, he decides to pull the trigger. How about you explain what his plan is? So the main plan is, again, father with the best intentions to give a life for their kids um, that he feels, and again, keyword, he feels he can't give, is to um, build a boat, disguise the boat as refugees from Cuba, and ship the boys off, um, hopefully to find a better home without him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really, it kind of plays the time. You know, all the Cuban refugees leaving Cuba off the coast of Miami. It's only, what, 90 miles or something like that. And he gets a one-way ticket down to Florida, down to Miami Beach. He's teaching them all these little facts about areas in Cuba that he's gathered from local Cubans in New York. So if they are picked up, hopefully they're picked up, when people start questioning where they're from, they can talk about all the things of the neighborhood that they came from in Cuba just to add credibility to their story. They don't really understand what his plan is the whole time. They are just kind of doing it because he's telling them to. It's like homework. You know, he's teaching them geographical facts about Cuba. He's talking about, oh, when a hurricane blew down this movie theater in 1952. Little things that will add credibility to their story when they are picked up by, let's say, the... Coast Guard or the authorities, and if they pretend that they're orphans and if they say that their parents are dead, they will be put up into, let's say, a foster program and hopefully adopted by someone who will give them a better life. It's a heartbreaking plan and it's heartbreaking for the father, and it's especially heartbreaking for the children when he puts them through all of these tasks and put them through all this work. And then they have a great day together in Miami Beach. They cook, they play in the water, they have a really nice moment. And then as soon as night falls, he's like, okay, get in the boat. You're, you're going out to sea. Remember what I taught you. You go out to sea until the gas runs out. You row back as fast as you can. And, and hopefully in the morning, someone will pick you up and you tell them exactly what I told you to do. And that's the moment that breaks my heart because little Luis is just broken. He doesn't want to go. He loves his father and he has to do, I call it the Harry and the Hendersons, you know? He has to, I hate you. Get out of here. Yep. You know, you can't stay here with me. I'm I'm not your father anymore. Really has to emotionally hurt this kid to get him to go along with the plan. And man, that just breaks my heart every time. Yeah, there's two pieces of emotion here. And you talked about uh, Poppy not telling the kids. 
And that one would be a good open for interpretation. One, he knows his kids best. He doesn't know how they're going to react or he does know how he's going. they're going to react. But two, that's going to be an inner demon for him of prolonging the inevitable. Yeah. He knows what's going to happen. And it's just the fact he wants to enjoy that time. It's almost like a last meal concept yeah. of enjoying that last time with your kids. But even to heighten the emotion of this, um, when you watch this, you have to understand this was in the middle of everything going on in Cuba with the government change. So I, I think thousands of refugees were coming over to Miami, like you said. I think it was like 174,000 or something like that. Um, and this isn't just an issue with this family. This is a symbol of everything going on in right in the middle of that conflict. So this has two elements to it of representing families that are that they're not just alone, but it's also handling what we're viewing on the screen. So there's two pieces of emotion that really heighten that impact and the subtleties of what's going on in the background um, with these, the father and the two boys um, helps really support um, that decision-making um, on what Poppy had to do. You go out there, when you run out of gas through the mother and the tank in the ocean, and the first people you see talk Spanish only. I hope you die. I hate. Luis, I do this because I love you. You don't understand, but I'm your puppy and I love you. Let's start the motor and go! I love you! And then the third act, which, you know. You kind of said there there is a weird energy to the third act, and I've seen this movie so many times, and I honestly each time I watch it, I just get a different interpretation of what it actually is. When you talked about the chaos of it, I definitely agree with you, and I've kind of come to a conclusion on it, but I'll get to that in a second. You know, you now have to follow Poppy's drama of okay, the kids are out, and in his mind, the Gulf Stream will just sweep them right back in, and someone will find them that morning and get him in there. Well, three days go by and he's listening to the radio. He's watching the TV. He's hanging out in Miami, sleeping on the beach. Essentially, he's a bum in Miami. He's got no place to stay because he hasn't heard about these kids being rescued yet. And there is a lot of intensity to that. If you've never seen this film before, knowing films of the late 60s and also knowing Arthur Hiller films, it could go many different ways it yeah. could go like the love story route and be like oh shit are these kids dead and his plan totally <laughs> backfired there are moments where it's like okay that might actually have happened but it doesn't after like a few days the kids are rescued they are found and they are pretty much going to exactly what he had planned they're in a hospital they're recovering because they are dehydrated they're burnt but there is all this chatter on the radio of like there's an industrial man in Texas that wants to bring them out there and they're getting all these donations and bikes and all these things like that and toys. So already he sees his plan is working and this is where I'd love to get your opinion of where the dynamic kind of changes and that is his behavior of just constantly hanging around the hospital and getting into different rooms, using different ruses, where we kind of go back into the kind of slapstick comedy of the film again. What was your feeling about that whole part of the film? That's that's where I'm torn on, because we go through 
the emotions. So we see him ship the kids off. There's a sign of relief. He goes through the sign of guilt. He goes through the sign of uh, needed to be redeemed. Um, and then we get to that scene. And that's a scene of desperation mm-hmm. of he has worked. He has thought he was doing the right thing. He realized the error of his ways. And now he wants that acceptance from his kids. He wants that uh, love from his kids again. So I think that's where I felt it was a little off balance um, with the what the film was trying to do. Um, that's where I thought it was a little too chaotic um, to really drive that point. I think we needed a, the desperation went through, but I don't think we got the emotional impact that I was personally looking for or what I think the film was trying to do. Um, I can see that the stages of emotion that they were intending to do, um, again, open to interpretation. Um, but when you put that desperation in, then add the slapstick, that's what made me a little confused on what the intent was. So this is where I kind of came to over the last few viewings. And I've, I've felt this way before, but I'm more, I'm more confident in my opinion. Now, my opinion is he's actually sabotaging the plan. He wants Mm. his kids back, but he is also not willing to accept that in his actions. He wants on the surface to make them go with the industrial guy in Texas who will give them a great life and put them in boarding schools or whatever and give them the best life they can. But if he really, really, really cared, he would go in there that one time and say, hey, Spanish only and then leave and never come back. But instead, he keeps going in. And so for me, it's like, you know, someone who is about to go and bungee jump for the first time, you know, it's like that, that am I going to do it or am I going to walk backwards and go off the platform and walk back down the stairs and not actually go through with it? That is where the chaos is. The chaos of that movie is supposed to reflect the chaos that's going inside of him where he just did this plan. It's going to work, but he wants out. He wants to get back in. He doesn't want his kids to go. He's not going to tell anybody that. He is going to keep pretending that he wants this to work, but if he really did, he would not keep going back in. Like, he wants to get caught. He wants to make this happen. It's it's a really interesting play, and you see it in the motions of his face, especially in that final reveal where the kids actually see him, and they start speaking English and they run down the hall and everyone that's involved realizes, oh, this has been a ruse and we're going to be publicly embarrassed. And they have that just amazing scene between the group that's going to adopt these kids out, the kids and Alan Arkin behind closed doors with all these reporters watching. Like, what is our story going to be? That part of the movie to me is the most emotionally gripping. That's funny that you bring that up because I got the same vibe of your interpretation, my first viewing, Mm -hmm. but there is a line that I picked up the second time where he just got done passing out. Um, and he wakes up and he asks what's going to happen with the kids. And he asks if they're going to be shipped to a rich family. Yeah. That's the line that kind of made me push back on what the intent was because I was a hundred percent with you on that first concept that that's what his intent was. But he's weighing his options. When you have a little doubt of what his options are, it's whether, okay, so if they're, it's like your bungee jump example. You're kind of debating if you want to do, then your buddy says, here's a hundred bucks. Do you want to do it now? Um, It's kind of that concept to me. 
So I think that's the line that should have been left out um, or explored further. That's what gave me doubt in this inter- in my interpretation of it. Interesting. And the part of the dialogue that really kind of solidified it for me is when he tells the kids that no matter where they go, he'll go out there so they can see each other, which you know mm. he can't. Yeah. He doesn't have the means to go out to wherever they are. He barely afforded a one-way ticket to Florida. So if he, they're going to end up in Colorado or Texas, wherever that dude was, and he's like, no, no, I'll be out there and we'll, we'll see each other all the time in secret. No, they're not. You know, so it just kind of goes to show like he didn't even have to have that conversation with them. So that's just the way I took it. But, you know, there are very few movie breakdowns of characters that just make me well up instantly and just make my heart stop. One of them is in The Godfather 3 when uh, Mary gets shot on the stairs and Pacino lets out that, you know, infamous wail that just Mm -hmm. stops everything in your body. You're like, oh my God, I can just feel this guy's pain. Alan Arkin has a breakdown in this movie. I'm getting teary-eyed thinking about it right now where he, every emotion in his body is like just resonating through the TV screen into yours where the guy who's in charge of adopting them out is like, no, 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 we can't send them away now that we know what this thing is. Like your plan has failed. What are we going to do? Send them somewhere. They're going to beat up this guy and rob him so they can make their way back to you. They don't want to be adopted. They want to be with you. You're their father. You're going to do what I say. What difference does it make to you? None at all, you idiot. None. I'd love to do it your way. Well, then do it. Give the kids to the guy with the steel oh, helmet. Then they have him run away, maybe kill the guy. No, they blow it for me the same way they blew it for you. They don't want to be adopted. They want to be with you. They love you. You're their father. Those lousy kids. And it's like the first time someone's actually told him that in that way, because yes, he's their father. He's always accepted that role, but it's always been very one-sided. You know, they've always been rebellious towards him because he's such a taskmaster. And now in this moment, really, he realizes that they could have everything in the world, the bikes, the toys, everything that he thinks they want. They're willing to throw that all away and go back and live in the barrio with him because he's their father. Here's the thing that really got me with that is the human nature of emotion is we want to be accepted. Uh, We want to be known. We want to have love. Um, We want those part of our lives to appreciate our lives. And this is where the emotion really hits home. And I think given taking out my interpretation of whatever the chaotic final third act would be, right? there's no denying the emotion from this scene because he finally got what he's been working hard for. He's uh, all that chaotic stuff that we've crescendoed to has finally paid off. He's been acknowledged that he is a father and we take a look at when his wife passed, how often does he, a father give gets that recognition, especially being a widower and he has everything on his shoulders. And then the whole movie takes us on this journey and it has him just almost like a sigh of relief. The filmmakers keep us on our toes on what's going to be said next. And we get that sigh of relief. We want the best for all three of the characters. And what I really appreciate about the emotion, and I talked about it earlier, this is an earned emotion. This isn't that boxing match 
This yeah. is the accepted emotion. This is the uh, hard work paid off. This is a family's love. So I think there's a lot of elements that actually contribute to this, but I think this was a home run when it comes to a pure uh, spot on example of earned emotion. And, you know, it's funny because like the ending can be interpreted many different ways. You know, is it a happy ending? Well, yeah, everyone ends up together, but they're still in the barrio with very little yeah. chance of getting out. And, you know, the kids are happy to be there because that's their world. They know nothing else but that. So, you know, the struggle continues, but, you know, sometimes the struggle is what actually keeps a family together. So that is kind of what I think the the final message of that is. And it's a message that I think, let's say, middle-class America doesn't understand because they haven't had to be through that, you know? They, they think a day where, oh, I didn't get the keys to the car because dad's being an asshole is the worst day of their life. Well, <laughs> these kids are going to be in the barrio for the rest of their lives because there's no opportunity for them. So there is some sadness there. There is a hard pill to swallow with the reality of the time and the political mindset of the time, but the families together, you know, and whatever wins and losses they have, they'll have together. So that is the happy end of the story. It's just a really, it's a really, like I said, an interesting play with your emotions and you can just read it differently depending on what your background is, what your life is. And honestly, just, you know, who you are as a, as a human. Well, you kind of talked, spoke to it too, because we've all been at that age, we've all been young, and this is where we have that human emotion, where we think back to when we're young. We've talked to our parents that way. Uh, we've had those moments. We've been in those kids' positions where we kind of talk back to our kids, and now that we're watching this film as an adult, we kind of look at it in the same way, but a different way, is... We want the best for our kids, but we at times have those moments and we have two ends of the spectrum versus guilt of talking to our parents that way and experiencing it for ourselves. And all the emotions that they show between the kids and the father um, when it comes to these two elements, you're absolutely right. It really attacks it where we, this is where the relatability comes because there's not one kid on the planet that hasn't talked back to their kids and been overdramatic. And right. those that have turned into parents now, I anything when it comes to uh, kids in conflict or an adult or a parent feeling like they're not good enough, that makes me emotional yeah. because we all know we don't become parents because we want the worst for somebody. We want them to be our better half. Yeah. And this is what this film does really well is to give those examples. A hundred percent. It's just a great it's just a great Father's Day movie. It's a great movie about being a dad. And as a son, it's a great movie about like understanding the hardships that fathers go through. Not all fathers. There are some bad fathers out there. I'm not going to lie. But I, I don't think that most fathers intend to be bad fathers. I think life just happens and choices happen and personalities conflict and things like that. You know, and it can be, like I said, interpreted many different ways. It's funny because we just did exactly what the movie does. We left out a very important performer in a very underperformed and underappreciated role. We left out Rita Moreno. Oh, Rita Moreno, yes. and but but that is a perfect example of what happens. 
Rita Moreno comes in. She has like three scenes. She plays Abraham's girlfriend who would love to be his wife, who would love to be the new mother of these kids. But he doesn't see anything good coming out of that. He's like, oh, what do we get married and you're gonna get pregnant and we're gonna have another kid to raise in this, in this crazy world and it breaks her heart. She has way too little screen time in this movie, and but her emotions are real and she's so good in what she does. But the film really does forget about her just like we did. So if I did have one major complaint about this movie, it's the fact that she's even in it because <laughs> she she's there, she's great, but she doesn't really have a place. And it maybe the film was supposed to be longer. Maybe she had more scenes, but they really, or maybe it was intentional. Maybe it's, it's so intentional, the fact that he is willing to throw everything away, including this relationship to a beautiful woman who loves him so much just to get his kids out. Again, it's so subjective. You can look at it in so many different ways. Yeah, I mean, coming off the back of West Side Story, I mean, this was a perfect movie to really have her shine. And when she's on screen, she's brilliant. But I considered her, I wasn't I wasn't taken back on her screen time. We always want more uh, Rita on screen. She's yeah. fantastic. Um, she's lovely and fantastic. But I think the importance of her um, being that symbol of the reason, because we don't have a lot of characters talking sense into Poppy. And... I don't I think it was the perfect amount given that during that time he just needed one conversation of his plan. It didn't need to be overkilled. So I again, the actress I wanted more of, the character I think was well placed, um but I would have liked to see out of my curiosity the follow up towards the end. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I I'm glad that you feel that way because that is something that's always kind of held me back and to hear a contradictory opinion in a positive way. I, I really do like that. And I appreciate that. Oh, so yeah, man, excellent, excellent Father's Day movie. Have you suggested this to anybody yet? Yes. So this will be our movie on Father's Day, actually. The one time I get all of us in the house to actually sit down with me and watch a movie. Amazing. Happens very rarely. Yeah, I've, I've got Father's Day off too, and that's my plan as well. Watch it for the fourth time this year, and <laughs> this will probably be your fifth. It's just a movie that I don't think I'll ever get tired of, and it's... It's rare to find a film made for dads, you know, yeah. like most people think, oh, dad wants to watch a Rambo movie or a Rocky movie or a movie where, you know, someone wins or beats the bad guy or wins the war. This is a movie where a guy I feel like wins his right to be a father. And it's that's. The, yeah. yeah, it's a non-stereotypical dad. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for joining me in this conversation. I love this movie. Everyone. You can find this movie on Tubi. It's also on the Internet Archive. So unlike a lot of films I've talked about in the past, this one's very easy to find. So definitely go find it. Also, I haven't watched any clips of it, but there was a TV sitcom that was done in the mid 70s with Hector Elizondo as Poppy. I'm a huge Hector Elizondo fan, so I'm going to have to go and see if I can find a little bit of that. It only lasted one season, so it probably wasn't great, but worth a worth a watch, I'm sure. <laughs> I saw that too. I need to check that one out too. But you know, and before we go, happy Father's Day, by the way. Yeah, happy Father's Day to you, man. Like it's 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 a lot of fun how we have to really like use our father schedules to get together and talk <laughs> about these movies. And yeah, it's just it's always a pleasure. And before we go, make sure you send out your socials where people can find you. 
yeah, you can check me out on wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at MovieWireShow. Like I say, you are uh, my guy for all the new and current releases with very, very good, mostly non-biased opinions, but (laughs) the the opinions that you have when you get a little bit salty, I I take them 100% like on the nose. I don't take them with a grain of salt because you and I have such very similar appreciations in cinema that if you say it's a one-star movie, I'm going to believe you. (laughs) I appreciate that. I like to have a little fun. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on thecultworthy.com where you'll find links to all my shows as well as links to Justin's show in the Cult Worthy Partners page. And hey, you know what? I'm sure you're going to be on the show again very soon. We seem to like always have you every couple months. So listeners, expect Justin back very soon. Love it. Have a good night, everybody. 